Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 239, Pearl Harbor, The American Perspective, part one. Between 7.30 and 7.40 a.m., Admiral Husband Kimmel was told of the U.S. destroyer Ward's activity of clashing with an undesignated submarine. Also, that the ready-duty destroyer had been dispatched to assist the ward. But Kimmel, like everyone else, did not know who they were fighting, if they were fighting at all. It could have been a mistake, and since shots had been fired, a big mistake. So, he deemed it best to gather more information and hopefully confirmation before more drastic action was taken. For, in truth, the preceding weeks had seen plenty of such contacts that turned out to be false alarms. And though he had not yet shaved or dressed for his upcoming golf game with General Short, he told his staff he would come straight away to the operations center. Soon after that, the strafing and bombing started. At the moment of the overall attack, Oahu had some 40,000 enlisted men. As their average age was only 19, the vast majority had no combat experience. Some, when faced with the danger from the skies, folded up and cried. Others tried to keep their heads and either hid or joined the fight. But men from both groups died that morning. It was all a matter of luck. To the northeast of Ford Island, at the Kaneohe Bay Naval Air Station, along the coast, VP-14, or Patrol Squadron 14, Division Leader Lieutenant Murray Hansen had just launched three of his 36 PBY-5 Catalinas, the Navy's main reconnaissance seaplane. With that done, he got himself some coffee and began to read the newspaper. When the planes returned, he would debrief them and secure the station, their work being done for the day. It was then that he was told one of his pilots had helped the destroyer Ward attack a small sub at the entrance of Pearl Harbor. But as we have seen, HQ wanted a jig, that is, for those involved, to verify and repeat their message. Lieutenant Hansen and the communications officer just knew This extraordinary message was a garble. It had happened many times before. Things would write themselves out soon enough. Instead, not ten seconds later, Hansen and the communications officer heard an approaching plane. However, it sounded off. It was then, as the plane flew over them, that one of the remaining seaplanes, anchored nearby, exploded into flames. As the attacker rolled away, both men saw the meatball, the rising sun insignia on the Japanese warplane's wings. The time was 7.50 a.m. As the air station was new, no alarm had been set up yet, something to ring out to warn the men, awake and asleep, around them. The best the men on the ground could do was fight back with whatever was to hand and to send out warnings to others on the island. The men who had forty-five caliber pistols took shots as the Japanese fighters whirled around them. As for the warnings, the officer of the day sent those out to Bellows Field, further south, and to Hickam Airfield, south of Battleship Row, though neither were believed. 
The calls were seen as practical jokes, which were not tolerated on an early Sunday morning. Still, Kaneohe's commander, Harold Beauty Martin, issued orders to his 303 sailors and 95 Marines. He found that, overall, the young men were reacting admirably. They had already started breaking off the locks of the armory, like at Wheeler Field, and started passing out Thompson submachine guns. Yet these would have little effect on the attacking planes. As for the Japanese warplanes, their goal of destroying all of Kaneohe's seaplanes was accomplished. But the story of Kaneohe cannot be left behind without telling the tale of Chief Aviation Ordnance Man John Finn. A little later that Sunday morning, the 15-year veteran was at home. At 7.48 a.m., he heard gunfire coming from the air station, about a mile away. Seconds later, a neighbor was knocking on his door. She had a message that he was needed at the station right away. Finn jumped into his car and made for the airfield. As he pulled up, he could see that the Japanese planes were already deep into their attack. He also noticed that most of the PBYs were already on fire. Still, some of his men were using the machine guns attached to the planes to shoot at the enemy. Some of the others had removed the 50 caliber guns and set them up on a makeshift stand. This took guts Finn knew, but no one seemed to be in overall command, at least not of this, so Finn took it upon himself. Grabbing one of the guns from a co-worker, a painter, Finn had it put on a teaching board and then wheeled out into the open. Only later would Finn explain this suicidal stunt by saying, I was hopping mad. I wanted to shoot down every damned plane out of the sky. And incredibly, that's where Chief Petty Officer Finn spent the next two hours of his life. As one Zero fighter came down low, he disappeared behind some smoke, generated from the wreckage around the airfield. Finn told himself, when he gets out of that smoke, I'm going to let him have it. And then, I swung my gun around to the center of that smoke, and that guy came barreling out of it. I was shooting right down and hit the propeller hub. I got off maybe eight rounds. I think he came to get me, but his plane slammed into the hillside. I had tons of ammunition. Everybody kept bringing me more ammunition to shoot. Yet Finn was about to find out, just as the Germans, Russians, British, Italians, Greeks, Poles, Finns, Norwegians, Africans, Commonwealth troops, and anyone else who had engaged in battle thus far, combat, due to mechanization, was no longer only about personal bravery. When the second attack wave came at Kaneohe at 8.30 a.m. in the form of nine horizontal bombers and several fighters in two waves, Finn realized that he and the other pilots or crew now manning the guns could not engage or fire fast enough to keep the planes at bay. Finn said, I can still remember walking around that gun, cursing everything in the world, kicking and screaming and hollering. I was madder than hell. I got shot in the left arm and shot in the left foot. Broke the bone. I had shrapnel blows in my chest and belly and right elbow and right thumb. 
My scalp got cut, and everyone thought I was dying. They yelled, Oh, Christ, the old chief had the top of his head knocked off. I had 28 holes in me that were bleeding. And yet, Finn did not leave his post until given a direct order. And even then, he only allowed basic treatment of his wounds so he could remain there and direct the rearming and refueling of the three VP-14s when they came back. And they had only survived because they had not been at the airbase at the time of the attack. Finn would end his post-action report with the line, Basically, it just wasn't my day to die. Later, when his passions had cooled, Finn evaluated the attack on Pearl. You've got to give those Japs credit. They did a wonderful job, militarily. Just cause they sneaked in on us. He went on to use a line that has been attributed to General Nathan Bedford Forrest of the U.S. Civil War. Get there first, and don't tell nobody you're coming. At 7.55 a.m., Lieutenant Commander Shigeru Itaya from the Akagi and Lieutenant Yoshio Shiga from the Kaga led 18-0 fighters on an attack of the Marines Mooring Mast Field at Iwa, seven miles or 11 kilometers west of Pearl Harbor. Built in 1925, the 100-foot high mast, hence the part of the field's name, was meant to handle airships or zeppelins, but it was never used as such. By 1941, the mast had been augmented to hold a flight control tower. Between that, its four runways, and numerous hangars, it was certainly a viable target for the Japanese. As the 20 enemy airplanes had the element of surprise on their side for the first pass, they were able to destroy many of the base's 4F-4 fighters and Douglas Dauntlesses. This was the first of eight strafing passes overall, but once the planes were smoking, destroyed, or in flames, the attacking aircraft would go after the men running around. When the alarm had been sounded after the first pass at 7.55 a.m., many of the men were half a mile away, but responded to the call of arms. As for the Marine Air Group, or MAG-21's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Claude A. Sheriff Larkin. He was at home when the alarm came. As he drove pell-mell in his 11-year-old Plymouth, he was strafed by a zero. Pulling over, he hid until the offender went away. Then, getting back into his car, he reached the airfield at 8.05 a.m. to see the attack fully underway. Grabbing one of the guns, the sheriff was soon hit by a zero and badly wounded. But like Finn and so many others that day, he refused to leave his post. The younger men around him, he determined, still needed his leadership. As for one of those men, Corporal Ern Hines, who had only been activated from the Marine Reserve from Minneapolis a year before, was using the field's fire truck to get the crew chief to the bulk of the airplanes. By the time they arrived, the two men could see that the majority of their planes were now wrecks. But, before they could process this further, a Zero centered in on the fire truck and let loose, 
The vehicle's rear tires exploded as shells pierced them. The two men jumped out and crawled under the fire truck. By the time the Japanese left, nine of Iwa's 11 F-4F fighters and 18 of its 32 Douglas Dauntlesses were beyond hope. The rest would need serious work before they could fly again. Ironically, no bombs were dropped on the airstrips, and Iwa would become, in time, the hub for all marine aviation units who did combat in the Pacific. Not that all of the 20 Japanese airplanes got away safely. During the night before Oahu was attacked, 2nd Lieutenant George Welch and 2nd Lieutenant Kenneth Taylor were in the southern part of the island in a Waikiki hotel. A post-Christmas dinner and dance had evolved into an all-night poker game. They did not hit their beds until 6.30 a.m., but at 7.55 a.m. they were awoken by the sound of low-flying planes, machine gun fire, and explosions. As the two pilots only had their mess dress, that is, their formal evening attire, they put back on their mess jacket, their trousers, with its white formal dress shirt, though they probably skipped the black ties. Calling the Haleiwa Auxiliary Airfield, 10 miles away from the hotel, Taylor told them to ready two of their P-40 Warhawk fighters. It was then both men jumped into Taylor's Buick and raced north. On their way, despite reaching speeds of 100 miles an hour or 160 kilometers an hour, the car was strafed at least once. As they climbed into the fighters, which only had 30 caliber ammunition in their wing guns, the crew chief advised the two pilots to disperse their planes, as in to get the hell out of here and hide somewhere until this was all over, to which George Welch replied, to hell with that. The two pilots headed south and passed over Barbers Point on the southern coast to the southwest of Ford Island. There they saw a few of the B-17s from California land. Turning east, they made for Iwa Morning Mass Field and came upon at least a dozen Japanese VAL dive bombers strafing the station. These enemy planes were from the second attack wave and had already used their bombs at Pearl Harbor. And, as the Americans had still not seriously challenged them in the air, they decided to stay to harass Iwa until their fuel limitations forced them north to their respective carriers. Though outnumbered, the two pilots closed in on the bombers and opened up with their thirty caliber shells. Welch hit one bomber, but it flew on. However, Taylor then closed in on it and finished it off, sending it crashing into the earth. But even this limited engagement used up the two P-40s partial ammunition. So, they made for Wheeler Field. The two men wanted 50 caliber ammunition, which Halaiwa, the plane's home base, did not have, and there was no chance of landing at Iwa safely. Taylor landed at Wheeler Field at 8.40 a.m., Welch a few minutes before him. Both planes had to avoid friendly anti-aircraft and then ground fire, but now that they were down, their planes were being readied. 
The ground crew's officers told the pilots not to go back up. It was too dangerous. But Taylor and Welch got their way and were soon back up in the air, with Welch departing first. Of course, as both men took off, they were being strafed by enemy planes that had found them. Taylor got the worst of it as he was taking off second. But before the planes lifted off, the two pilots had spotted the approaching bombers. Knowing that if they attempted to take off in the same direction as the bombers were flying, they would become relatively easy targets. But if they turned into the bombers' path, the response time of the enemy would be cut significantly. Welsh was relatively safe as he took off first, whereas Taylor left the ground and immediately began to fire on the bombers, who were trying to fire on him. But as the necessary attack angle for them put them in danger of crashing, Taylor was able to lift off, put out a few shots, and then performed a chandelle. That is, he made a sharp turn, all the while gaining altitude. But then, it really got crazy. As the clouds were moving in and obscuring everyone's view, before Taylor knew it, he was in the middle of the Japanese formation. Right away, one of the rear gunners in a dive bomber fired on Taylor, putting a shell one inch from his head, but another went in and out of his left arm. A third drove itself into his leg. At this point, Welch had approached the formation from behind and took out the dive bomber that fired on Taylor. Meanwhile, Taylor had decided it was a pretty good time to leave the enemy grouping, but as he did so, took advantage of his proximity and damaged another enemy aircraft. Taylor then saw that Welch had his own trouble as a Zero was on his tail. There was no way a P-40 could lose a Zero fighter. So, Taylor went in, but only to distract the more maneuverable and faster enemy aircraft. Before things could get any hairier, all of the enemy planes broke away and headed north. When the two Americans landed back at Haleiwa and drove to Wheeler Field, their squadron commander there, Major Gordon Austin, unaware of their actions, looked at the pilots in their mess dress and assumed they had just returned from an all-night party. Hence, he yelled, Get back to Haleiwa! You know there's a war on! To which the pilots, with Taylor bleeding profusely, explained their morning's outing. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. 
I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com As we have seen previously, at 8.02 a.m., Wheeler Army Airfield in the center of the island, and then the Schofield installation just north of it, were set upon from the air, leaving death, destruction, and chaos in their wake. At least 39 American soldiers were killed, and 59 more injured. Below Kaneohe to the southeast was the Air Corps' Bellows Field. Currently stationed there was the 44th Pursuit Squadron, as they were receiving additional training on the use of their guns. And that's where Lieutenant Tadashi Kaneko and his squadron, from the carrier Shokaku, or Soaring Crane, were heading to. At 8.10 a.m., Bellows received a call from Hickam Field, saying they had been badly shot up, fires had resulted, and fire trucks were desperately needed. But, as had happened so many times that morning, those receiving the calls thought this was another poorly timed prank. At 8.30 a.m., when Lieutenant Tadashi Kaneko reached Bellows, he was already out of cannon fire, so switched to his guns and began strafing the personnel tents below him. This attack of Kaneko's was witnessed by aerial gunner private first class, Raymond McBriarty, so he told his mates and asked them what they should do. The others and it's not clear if they believed him, replied that, as no alarm had been raised and their superiors had not given them specific orders, they were going to attend church as planned. Soon after this, one of the B-17s from California crash-landed nearby, being pursued by nine Japanese planes. Only then was the alarm given. Those still asleep rushed out of their tents, probably saving their lives, at least for a little while. The men who had gone to church were now running back to take up their positions. The men at Bellows frantically searched for guns, anything to shoot back at the enemy aircraft. Some grabbed Browning automatics, others Springfield bolt rifles. The latter would find, much to their dismay, those weapons were ineffective. Meanwhile, Raymond McBriarty, who had witnessed the earliest attack at Bellows, took control of a gun on the squadron commander's North American O-47 observation plane, along with a friend. They spent their time during that attack in between firing off the plane's thirty caliber machine gun and scrambling away when they had drawn too much attention to themselves. Though they fired off 450 rounds, it's not for sure they downed any enemy airplanes. They did receive silver stars for their efforts and bravery. During the chaos at Bellows, the Curtis P-40 Warhawk fighter planes that weren't wrecked hulls of metal were being readied 
by three pilots and the ground crew of the 44th Squadron. As it was a Sunday morning, the planes had not been refueled, and, in fact, their guns were in pieces as they were to be cleaned. Still, the men rushed to make the fighters ready. With this done, 2nd Lieutenant Hans Christensen mounted his plane and began to lower himself into the cockpit. That was when a bullet from pilot officer, first class, Tasukuu Matsuyama, took his life. Next, 2nd Lieutenant George Whiteman ran to his plane and began taxiing, even before the crew could replace the cowlings, or covers, on the wing's guns. But as he lifted off, Matsuyama was there again, quickly closing in, being followed by his wingman, pilot officer first class Toshio Makinoda. Though he tried to maneuver, white men had not yet built up enough speed for it to be effective. One of Matsuyama's shells found his engine. It burst into flames, and the plane crashed, killing white men. The third and last pilot at Bellows, the rest were away for various reasons, was First Lieutenant Samuel Bishop. He had taken off just after Christensen, which is probably why the two Japanese pilots did not see him at first. But when Bishop saw his comrade smash into the earth, like Finn, rage overtook him. Instead of trying to get away or gain more height or more speed first, he went right after the two Zeros who had just killed his friend. But as his plane was not as maneuverable as the Zeros, they easily avoided him, turned around, and became the hunters. Bishop went out to sea, but stayed low, hoping to lose his pursuers. But with Matsuyama's plane's superior speed, he and his wingmen were on him in seconds. The lead pursuit plane loosed a short burst, which forced Bishop to splash his plane in the water. What's more, he was wounded by one of the shells. Still, he maintained consciousness, climbed out of the plane with his one good leg, inflated his May West, and began the swim home. Bishop would survive the attack on Bellows Field. As the Japanese pilots left off their attacks on Bellows Field and Kaneohe Naval Air Station, one of their numbers, a naval airman first class, Shigenori Nishikachi, would soon find that an American soldier, with small arms fire no less, had scored several hits in his fuel tanks. This would set up its own incredible story on a small island just west of Oahu. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just a couple of announcements. Let's see here. I was recently on another podcast called Stories of the Second World War by Noah Tetzner. So, he and I talked about the early Desert War, North Africa, Operation Compass. So please uh, look that up and listen to that. We had a good time talking about that. And as far as getting caught up on thanking people who have helped out the show, and again, I really do appreciate it. Um, Let's see here. As far as those people who have signed up for membership, who get extra two episodes a month, and you can find all the information on uh, worldwar2podcast.net. Let's see here. We have Samir P. from Ontario, Canada. 
Yoon C. from Washington, D.C., Daniel P. from Topeka, Kansas, Sarah P. from Magna, Utah, sorry, Sarah, Chad O. from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, I'm sure I butchered that, sorry, uh, Freggy R. from Taiwan, Alexander G. from Schaumburg, Illinois. Um, this is going to be an interesting one. He explained it to me, but I can't remember. It's either John J. F., or J. John F. from Ontario, Canada. So sorry about that, JJF. Um, Swaby Shoes from Whitehall, Pennsylvania. Seven Oaks Media Limited. Uh, thank you for signing up. Uh, Daniel C. from the UK. Uh, Stephen B. from Australia. Um, as far as those who have bought a mug, there's Kevin K., Amy K. from Norellin, Australia. Thomas J. from Bella Vista, Arizona. Francisco B. from Massachusetts, who I met at the Sound Education Conference uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, it was great to meet him. As far as those who have made donations, there's Adam S. from Auckland, New Zealand, one of my favorite places in the world. So, so freaking beautiful. Can't wait to go back there. And Maria Z. Sorry, Maria, I'm not sure where you're from. Uh, the, the last donation, uh, who is, which is from Gary W. Jr., he put a message in his, uh, his donation. He wrote, When we visited Hawaii, we stayed at the Schofield Barracks, visited Pearl, hung out at the beach at Bellows, super soft sand, and had dinner at what I think was the O Club at the Wheeler Field. So, Gary, when I go back, you have to go with me and be my guide, and of course you'll have to pay for everything. Thank you very much, Gary. And as far as who bought a CD, Grant B. from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So, thank you for everybody who... um, one way or the other has supported the show during my uh, darker time. I do appreciate it. Please check out my uh, episode with Noah Tetzner. We enjoy, I enjoy doing that a lot. And um, I will be coming out with the next episode just as soon as I can. And, of course, I still have a lot of book interviews coming up in the future because publishers keep sending me stuff, so I will keep reading them and, and, and interviewing the authors. And I'm having fun doing it. I'm learning a lot. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. So, as always, take care, everyone.